just trying to tread water. That's the most resilient thing that you can do. Just survive. Welcome back to this week's episode of Be Boulder. Last episode, we talked about resiliency and how that term has been bastardized to some degree in the age of COVID and how resiliency is really more of an amalgamation of hundreds of small choices to get up and fight another day or to push the ball forward. Those continued choices to fight are what really makes one resilient. But what happens when you're dealt a blow so deep, so painful, that you just don't think you can fight And when that blow is associated with a major loss of a loved one and the waves of grief just keep coming and coming as if to draw you down and drown you in grief's undertow, how? How do you get up and be resilient and fight through that day? Sometimes in moments like these, the most resilient thing you can do is honestly to just survive. It's okay to just keep your head above water or to just keep swimming. Now, no one is good at grief, right? But I will say I'm particularly bad at it. Uh, We all know our strengths and weaknesses, or at least should at some point in our lives. Expressing grief wasn't really something that we did in my family growing up, and we tended to sort of move past the hurtful slash grief-inducing moments in our lives and didn't really spend time processing it. So I can say grief is just something that I didn't know how to do, so in turn, I didn't do it. (laughs) And you can get away with that for a while in your life, but at some point and at some time, an event happens And you learn that the best way to get through grief and to come out the other side is to just put your head down and to drive right through it. In early 2016, lots of things were going really, really right in my life. Sure, I had my fair share of difficulties, but I was a partner in a VC firm. My personal practice was shooting to the moon. I had recently lost a ton of weight, so I was feeling myself. (laughs) And my gym was growing at an amazing clip. But a blow to my soul that would make the Chicxulub crater look like a hole that a two-year-old dug in a sandbox was rocketing at me at 40,000 miles an hour. On December 9th, 2015, it was simply the worst day of my life. Two days prior, I had taken my beloved Queen Stella, the dog who prevented me from killing myself a few years earlier, to the vet because she developed this odd cough and it was following a dental procedure that she had had. So now like a lot of us do when we don't want to think that something is really, really wrong, we tell ourselves that, you know, clearly when they tricked her, something had happened and they'd scratched her esophagus or, you know, something like that was what they were going to come back and tell me. But nothing, and I mean nothing, could have prepared me from the call from the vet that day. I'd missed the first call from the vet, but the message wasn't your normal check-in. Hey, everything's fine. You know, just call him to see how the dog's doing. It was ominous, and it said to call back immediately. <laughs> I, it said that I needed to speak to someone, and, and so I called back right away, and I just was demanding to speak to anyone who would talk to me because the doctor was tied up. And in the blink of an eye, 
my world was shattered. A poor fourth year vet student, bless her little heart, <laughs> broke me the most devastating news I'd ever heard. Stella had thyroid cancer that had metastasized in her lungs and she was going to die. And she told me this, I honestly just crumpled to the floor of my office and I sobbed. And I mean, ugly, gut-wrenching sobs. Naturally, with my walls being glass, everyone who was in my office at the time could see this and several of them came running to try to figure out what the heck to do. And they too watched in agony as I tried to ask questions about options and next steps and what do I do and you know, just tried to manage through what was now a crisis. And after we hung up the phone, I just sat on my office floor and I honestly, I just sobbed into my hands for an hour. The next few days were littered with oncology appointments and tests and studies and medicine and terms I'd never heard before. I honestly had turned over every stone of possibilities. I'd worked so hard in my life to have the resources to solve nearly every problem that would have come before me. But I quickly learned that no amount of money or resources could solve the problem at hand. My dog, my heart and soul, was going to die. And there was nothing that I could do about it. Now, like I'd handled so much grief before, you know, this moment I tried working through it. I tried exercising through it. I tried praying and begging and bartering with the universe through it. And the mound of grief was just building and building like the peak of a volcano that's just preparing to rupture. And I remember our last walk. I sobbed as I watched her slowly saunter proudly down the sidewalk because although Stella was probably suffering more than she'd ever let us know or let on, she still held that little head high with those big floppy ears bouncing with every single step. Every single day was an emotional battle between being strong for her and loving her through the suffering and enjoying every last micro moment that we had and simply falling apart behind the scenes. I did my best to not let it impact my work or let anyone know how much I was struggling, which is honestly, you know, true resiliency. If you ask me, it's like fighting through these things, these demons and these battles and these struggles that you're going through, but you're picking your head up every day and you're just trying to fight the good fight. And I pushed forward and I got my job done each day and I suffered while I watched my queen slowly slip away. The morning of February 25th, 2016 started like any other day. I showered, but while I was in the shower, Stella was pawing at the glass doors and I told her I'd be out in a minute and she wandered away. I got out and I dried my hair and I curled my hair and Stella was pawing at my leg towards the end of it, just as I finished my last curl. I bent down to hug her because that's usually what she wanted when she did that. And she hugged me back, resting her sweet little head on my shoulder. And she stayed there for a while like she normally does and then lifted her head <laughs> as she would to kind of signify that the queen was done. She lifted her head up and took two steps behind me and collapsed to the floor. Her breathing was shallow and she was losing control of everything. My girl was dying. I frantically called my husband who raced home and I threw on clothes and we sprinted to the car. I carried her in my arms. I held her in my arms as we drove 90 plus miles an hour to the vet. We probably pulled in on two wheels and I raced into the lobby, left the car door open with Stella in my arms, pleading for help, pleading for someone, anyone to help me. The staff rushed over and placed her on a gurney and rushed her into the back of the ER. They'd taken Chris and I into a grieving room where we started, they said, you know, they were going to stabilize her and bring her to us so we could say our goodbyes. And 
make one of those really painful choices that you have to make. And as we were prepping the paperwork, the doctor received a call and they said she wasn't going to make it to the room because she was deteriorating so quickly. And so we raced through the back of the hospital corridors, probably running faster. I think I pushed people out of the way, to be honest with you. And there Stella was like, she was just gasping for air. And I, I was, I can remember the people, you know, the doctors, bless their hearts. They were trying to explain to me what was going on. And I just started screaming, like, she's suffering. Please stop. Just stop talking and just do it. They gave her the numbing agent and then the materials that stopped her heart. And Stella died in my arms at 9.27 a.m. Finding out I would lose Stella was the worst day of my life. The day she died was the second. I felt I had failed her. I'd failed us by not catching it sooner. I, I, I was so guilty about that. I felt so much guilt. The being that had loved me more than anything or anyone ever could was gone from this realm. And I just felt so alone. The weeks that followed were just a blur. I, I know I worked and I worked out probably compulsively. I also ate a lot of ice cream. <laughs> I went through the motions, but sometimes when you're just trying to tread water, that's the most resilient thing that you can do. Just survive. I'd never before felt or experienced a loss like that. And I certainly didn't have the tools to manage it. My MO was to bury it down deep and never talk about it again. The problem was that just wasn't working this time. I'd work, I'd exercise, I'd try to carry on my life as normal, but it would never again be the same. And what I was wildly ill prepared for was the grief waves. A wise person once told me that grief is like the ocean. And sometimes you can feel the soft waves lapping against your ankles and your toes and you know the grief is there, but you can walk through it and you can move through your day and move through your life. And then out of nowhere, sometimes comes a mighty wave of grief so strong that it just swallows you up and pulls you back into the ocean, into the ocean of grief and into the ocean of pain. And it was those waves walking through the grocery store or wherever the hell I would be that I was just so ill-prepared for. Couple that with the fact that the world tells us we should grieve and move on. For whatever reason, we have these weird time frames in our head, like, well, so-and-so's dog died so that they should move on in three weeks and be fine. But it doesn't really work that way. Grief is a function of love, and the deeper the love, the worse the grief. And for those of you who need to hear this, love knows only love. Love does not know gender. Love does not know title. Love does not know mom or dad or partner or sister or friend or dog. Love only knows love. This was so important to me because after the few months, I'd be walking romantically up and down the aisles of Target as I want to do. And sometimes the memory would just wash over me. Something would hit me. And there it would be, middle of aisle seven at Target, <laughs> Tears streaming down my face, ugly crying, you know, in the soap aisle. I thought people would judge me for crying over a dog. But then I realized I was just grieving the loss of love and I didn't give a shit what they thought. <laughs> As I tried to work through this, feeling embarrassed, I quickly learned that this was just the price I paid for love. And it was a big price. I also learned that the best way to get through the pain was not to bury it, but to drive right through it. I proceeded to feel every ounce of the soul 
wrenching pain, shed every tear, and I honored every memory. I let go of that guilt that was weighing on me, and I made peace with the fact that she chose every step of that. She chose how to let me know. She chose when she was going to go. That was the way she wanted it to be. But let me tell you, <laughs> that was hella hard, right? It taxed my marriage. It taxed my career. It taxed my friendships. It all took a toll on every aspect of my life. Because sometimes all I was doing was just surviving the day. But you know what? <laughs> I still forged on. Despite the pain, I still showed up. I still worked. I still loved. I still fought for me. And I fought for the things that were important to me. Even if that only meant some days that I was answering emails and phone calls or just getting enough done to say I moved the ball forward even a millimeter, I still forged on and I still fought on. Why? Because that's what she would have wanted me to do. Did I always want to? God, no. And was it easy? Oh, God, no. <laughs> Did I want to die from the waves of grief and, and pain some days? Yes. But did I let the darkness of grief take me down? Well, it certainly knocked me off kilter. No, I still pushed on. If you've ever been lucky enough to love so deeply that grief has nearly drowned you, then you're actually really lucky. And that's the way I think that most resilient people see it, right? It's awful pain, just awful. But those who we have loved and have left would want to know that we forged on, that we found happiness. And sure, maybe life will never, ever be the same, but pushing forward and building yourself and continuing to build your life after countless waves of grief have knocked you down, and each time you get back up and choose to fight for you, that, friends, that is resilience through grief. And here's a little secret. If you can survive having your heart torpedoed at point-blank range by a bazooka, you can survive anything. Surviving the waves of grief as they smash into you daily is resilience. Just keeping staying afloat is resilience. And that's what the ones who went before us would want us to do. Next week, we turn to joy. And we need it, honestly. The last two episodes, we've been doing a lot of crying. Uh, after hardship, we have two choices. Negativity or positivity and joy. And I'm excited to share some pearls of wisdom there. Until then, if the grief tries to drown you, just keep your head above water. Sometimes all we need to do is survive. That, friends, is resilience. And as always, don't just be bold, be bolder. Thanks for listening today. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review if you enjoyed this episode. Follow us on Insta at BeBolderCast or visit our blog at TheBolderLife.com. If you have questions or suggestions for me, leave me a message at 614-706-6693. 